More of that, please. <laughs> wow. I'm going to ask you to go to uh, Luke chapter 2, if you would. Um, if you're new here, welcome, first of all. Glad that you're here. We've been, um, over the last year, doing a study in Genesis uh, called E2E, Eternity to Eternity. Um, but we took a, a little bit of a break for a couple of weeks to take a look at Christmas stuff. Um, so I'm going to ask you to go to Luke 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. Before we do that, though, um, I'm going to just read to you a, a section from Luke 12. I don't expect you to turn there, but um, I'm just going to phrase it this way or frame it this way. If when you came into church this morning, somebody met you in the parking lot and asked you, why did Jesus come? What do you suppose your answer would be? How do you think you would respond to someone catching you cold, getting out of the car, where it's cold, and, and just being hit with that question? A lot of people think that because it's Christmas time, we would immediately answer with, uh, He came to bring peace. He came to bring salvation. Um, he came to point glory to God. And, and all those would be true except for what Jesus says out of his own mouth for the reason that he came. Let me read this to you from Luke chapter 12, verse 51. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. That will not make it onto a Christmas card. <laughs> You'll never see one with it. But I'm going to give you a Christmas card this morning so that you understand why he said that and how it actually points to him. Here's what we've been asking. We've been asking the question, how do you know that Jesus is the one? How do you know that he's actually the promised one that God said would come? Well, we looked last week at prophecies. We looked in depth. I'm going to ask you to go a little bit deeper with me this morning as we dive back into Luke chapter 2. And you'll notice maybe if you picked up the notes at the, uh, in the atrium when you came in, there's not really any statements on there. There's a lot of lines and there's a lot of verses. That's what we decided to do during Christmas so you can write your own notes. I talked to someone just before the service who said they took six pages of notes last week. So you got to pass that one this morning, okay? See how you do with that. Before we jump into that, let's pray together. Lord God, we come before you in total recognition that we don't have the right, but because of Jesus, he made everything right so that we can come to you and we can approach your throne and we can ask for a favor. And the favor is this, God, that you would cause your word to come alive right now, that you would speak through the power of the Holy Spirit and we would be content with that. So grant us that, Lord God, that we would understand what you're speaking through your word and then apply it to our lives. Show us how to understand this better. We pray for this in Jesus' majestic name and all God's people said, amen. Within the fall of man is the promise of Christmas. Within the fall of man is the promise of Christmas, the most horrible thing that could happen on planet earth happened. Greater than all the plagues, greater than all diseases, greater than nuclear bombs, greater than climate change, greater than all division, greater than all political hostility, 
Greater than all of that is the original sin, the fall of mankind because of rebellion against God. That distinctive moment stands alone in time as much greater than all the things that I just referred to because all failed relationships, all thorns, all thistles, everything in your life that goes wrong from one day to the next, they stem from one rebellious action, the fall of man. But praise God, in that same moment in time, in that moment, God stepped in and through an act of predetermined, amazing grace, He prophesied a promise, a Christmas promise. So within the fall of man is the Christmas promise and the original promise that God made at that point in time. We touched on last week, let me take you back to it, Genesis 3.15, just to frame your thinking. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Uh, Very likely, if you're new to church, you're looking at that and thinking, what? I have no idea what you just said. Let me explain what I'm referring to here. This prophecy of God, God said that Himself and He's speaking to Satan. That prophecy, that promise explodes on the scene within the context of the fall. So bear down on verse 15. God said specifically, between your offspring and hers. And He's speaking to Satan who just brought the temptation and caused man to fall. And he says, between your offspring and hers, the woman, the one who comes from her, that one is going to crush you. You will wound him on the heel. And that happened at the cross. Jesus was wounded on the heel. But we would all recognize a heel wound is nothing like a head wound. God said, you will hit him on the heel, but he will crush your head. And a head wound is a fatal blow. So it's very clear that this promise is referring to the one who would descend from a female line, which is extraordinary because the Bible always refers to children coming through the male line, the lineage, the ancestry, never to the women. But this one case, this one exceptional case, it's going to come from the line of a woman. In other words, something extraordinary is going to happen that will cause this circumstance to be unlike anything else and will cause his ancestry to be through his mom and not through his dad. And no further explanation is given and none will be given for thousands of years. God gives them that promise and then he leaves that promise hanging so that they will look forward to know that the tempter will one day be destroyed. And then along comes Isaiah. 800 years before Jesus, and he writes Isaiah chapter 7 that a virgin will conceive, and the pieces of the puzzle begin to come together. So within the fall of man is the promise of Christmas, and that promise set wheels in motion. And the wheels that were set in motion caused the ancients to look forward in time, believing that God is going to fulfill His promise. So Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Rebecca. Moses, Daniel, Esther, Ruth, Malachi, all of them, they're looking forward, looking forward, hoping, believing that God is good to His Word and that He will fulfill His promise. So Hebrews eleven thirteen says this in the New Testament, all these died in the faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distant. So these ancients are looking forward. 
believing that God in hope, knowing that one day He's going to send this one who will ultimately crush death because they understood that God is very precise in His promises and He can afford to be, but He's also very dependable. If you believe this morning that God is dependable in His promises, I want you to say amen out loud. God is. He is absolutely dependable. What He says is going to happen is going to happen. So Christmas is really all about God keeping His Word. So the question that's asked is asked this way, how do we know that Jesus is the one? Why did He actually come? You're not asked to believe without evidence. I told you that last week. I repeated it again this morning. You're not asked to believe without evidence. And so we look at prophecies because prophecies are evidence. We have proof that these things were fulfilled. Where we left off at last week, we saw that this Old Testament saint by the name of Simeon is being written about in the New Testament. And he's a crucial witness to the identity of who this one is. And we left off with the baby being in his arms. So go with me to the screen, Luke 2, verse 28. He took him into his arms. Now, just frame this in your thinking, if you can. He's holding the great I am in his arms, right? Like, how amazing is that? How can you picture the thought that this one is in his arms is the mighty God? And if you get past that, you begin understanding this condescension that God had taken upon Himself to become a child and be on this earth to rescue us, the rest of it all falls in place and makes sense. So after watching His conversation with Joseph and Mary develop, you know exactly who the Messiah is, and you'll know that you're not spending your life with your ladder up against the wrong wall, that this one truly is whom Simeon pronounces Him to be. So watch, we're going to go piece by piece through what He has to say here. Verse 29, according to your word... For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. So first section, according to your word, that means Simeon is basing everything that he's about to say and everything he has said on his knowledge of the Bible. He knows God's word that well, and it allows him to have profound insight, both into his present day where he's living and into the future, meaning where you're living today in 2022. The things you're about to see here relate directly to your world today. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you need to know that it is highly unusual for a Jew standing in the temple in first century Israel to begin talking about the Gentiles, which is exactly what Simeon begins to do, and especially to begin talking about Gentile salvation. Now, watch with me, verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. And this is a stunning statement where he's going with this. Because the standard belief in first century Israel is that they're the chosen people for good reason. Because God said, I've chosen you among all the nations of the earth to be my representatives. So indeed, God did actually choose those individuals. But the mindset that they were the chosen people caused the ancient Jews to believe that the Messiah is going to come. And when He comes, He's coming to deliver them, not to deliver the rest of the world, but specifically for Israel and that he would establish an earthly kingdom, and that he would reign. But watch where Simeon goes in verse 32. My eyes have seen your salvation, verse 32, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. This is a stunning statement to make, 
And if you're not familiar with the Bible, Gentiles is, is not a derogatory term. It just means non-Jewish, someone who wasn't born biologically a Jew. So if you're from China, or you're from Korea, you're from South America, you're from Africa, you're from Michigan, and you don't happen to be from Jewish descent biologically, you're a Gentile. Here's why his statement is so stunning. The Gentiles are responsible for making them the slaves of Pharaoh. The Gentiles brought the invasion that brought false idol worship. The Gentiles caused the conquest of Israel that caused them to be hauled off to Babylon as captives. And the Gentiles, every time they invaded their world, they brought corruption and they brought attack and they brought destruction. And in the first century when Simeon is standing in the temple, he's very, very aware that Rome, a Gentile nation, has taken over Israel and is dominating them and keeping them under their heels. So there's enormous resentment because they've been pounded and they've been beaten and they've been massacred. And behind all of this are the Gentile nations. Very difficult for you and I to grasp the weight of what's going on here in 2022. So let's picture it in the context of our world. Think of a global, we'll say, enemy. Think of a global enemy. Maybe what pops in your mind right away is Russia because of what they've done in the last year. Now, let's picture an old man standing in the Ukraine this morning with a baby in his arms and holding that child up and saying in the presence of people who live in Ukraine, this child has come to deliver the Russians. And you catch the weight of what's being stated here by Simeon. Because immediately, fellow Ukrainians would say, don't you realize what they've done to us? Don't you know why we're in the situation that we're in? It's because of those people. We have a human tendency, and our human tendency is to conclude that some people are automatically disqualified from the rescue because of their behavior, because of their past. And in that same breath, we really have to check ourselves, and we have to look at our own life because we know inwardly who we really are. We know that at one time we were alienated from God. That's, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Look with me on the screen. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. If you remember 1 Corinthians 6, this is where Paul's got that huge laundry list of things that will disqualify you from the kingdom of God. And the, the laundry list is really long. But then he comes to verse 11 and he says, such were some of you, you used to be that way. But you've been washed, you've been sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ your Lord. That's, that's where he goes with that reality. See, we have to check ourselves because we were alienated from God. The Bible says that someone who's unsaved, they're actually shrouded in darkness, that they're lost. They've got these blinders on their eyes. But when they become saved, when they understand who Jesus is, the covering is completely taken away. I referred to this last week. Look with me again, 2 Corinthians 3.16. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Uh, elderly people usually have trouble with vision. Simeon's got old eyes. He's probably 100 years plus according to extra-biblical sources. But he has spiritual eyes that can cause him to see very, very clearly, and he sees God's salvation. And this baby, baby is 40 days old, just barely. 
How in the world can Simeon see God's plan for this one, for the life of this child? Well, we're told that he's been meticulously waiting for the fulfillment of God's Word. And so he says in verse 31, you've prepared this, God. You have prepared this in the presence of all peoples. Let me just show you some glimpses of how you know that he really knows the Bible. He's echoing here Psalms. He's echoing Psalms 98. Look with me on the screen. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. Simeon is simply quoting that later, saying, you've you've prepared this, God, for all the nations, not just for Israel, but for the entire planet. That's why in verse 33, you come to where we left off last week, his mom and dad were shocked. Verse 33, and his mother and his father were amazed through Mazzo at the things which were being said about him. They're shocked at this announcement because they've already known a lot of information. The angels have personally come to them. But in spite of all the information they already have, this is new information, things that they did not know. And so they're marveling again and again. And the shock is for this reason. They've got a total stranger who's got great learning and great position, and he possesses deep insight. And he says to them, this one, this baby, he's the savior of the whole world, Jews and Gentiles. But that's just the first shock. The second shock is this. The whole world's gonna be divided because of him. So if that parking lot question comes your way, why did Jesus come? You come to this component of Luke chapter 12 in which Jesus said in verse 51, do you think I've come to bring peace? I came to bring division. And this is exactly what's being stated here by Simeon. To this point, they've been told that this child is the Holy One of God, but they have obviously not comprehended the scope of what this means. The entire planet will be confronted with a choice because of this one. And it's from that point that Simeon stops praising God and he begins prophesying who this one really is and the outcomes as a result of it. So verse 34, and Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, Mary his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. And for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So we're told that he blesses them. I I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if he laid his hand on Joseph or, or on Mary, or he's holding the baby and he touches both of them. We don't know. We don't have that information. But what we do know is at the same time he's doing that, he prepares them for what's to come. And he launches with the truth that many people don't want to hear. And it's really, really hard to digest. Now, remember, the Holy Spirit is upon him. You read that earlier last week when we looked at this. The Holy Spirit is leading him. And so he's speaking with that authority. And he's speaking spiritual truth, even though it's really hard to hear. And he says, because of this one, this one that is appointed, meaning not random, It didn't just happen by chance. This one who's appointed, the world will be brought to a point of decision. So he says that in verse 34, this child is appointed. In your notes this morning, and you'll see this on the screen, is this Greek word that talks about being appointed. And the way it's described here is being outstretched, literally and figuratively. 
So you know Jesus was stretched out on the cross, literally, and figuratively, He's been laid out there for all the world to decide what to do with Him. This child has been stretched out, and He goes on to say in verse 2, for the fall and the rise of many. There He is. You have to do something with Him. You can't just ignore Him. You have to do something with this one who's been stretched out. And He causes many people to trip and many people to stumble, which is far different than Napoleon, Marx, Lenin, Alexander the Great, name the other world leader. Different than the Pharaohs, different than the Caesars. What you do or don't do with them makes no difference whatsoever in your eternal destiny. It makes no difference in your moral decisions. But this one, this one makes all the difference. And people, in my experience, respond in one of two ways. They either trip over the reality of Jesus or they surrender to the reality of Jesus. I told you last week that prophecy reveals purpose. And the purpose in this child is this. He's barely a month old and we're told that he is the dividing line of all humanity so Simeon says in verse 34, for the fall, for the fall, and he goes on to say, of many in Israel. Tosis is the word that's used here, the, the Greek word. It actually means a crash, a downfall. I had an eye doctor come to me in between services who said that, that tosis word, that's actually a drooping eyelid. We use that medically today. In, in the real world setting in the first century, it, it meant a collapse. A complete downfall, some to the point of collapse that they will never get up again and will never recover and will walk away like the Herods and the Pharisees who said, no, thank you. I don't want that. I totally reject what you're saying. I want nothing to do with this, which is echoed in Paul's writing. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. I'm guessing this morning, because I know it's true in my world, I'm guessing that you have in your world individuals of whom that is true. They would say to you, that's fine for you. <laughs> Thanks. Sorry, you need that. But I don't. I reject what you're presenting. No thanks. How do you pray for individuals like that? You pray that God would take the veil off their eyes, that He would remove the blinders, that God would cause them to see. Because even in Jesus' death, this isn't true of anybody else, even in His death, His death brought division. Even the manner by which He was going to die and the method in which it was going to be carried out. Let me show you a couple of the crucifixion prophecies. Isaiah 53, 5. It says this, the Messiah, he would be wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. That was written 800 years before Jesus was born. 600 years before crucifixion was even invented. And, and that one doesn't exactly describe crucifixion, but let me show you the description of the crucifixion from the Old Testament. Look with me, Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
written in 900 B.C., hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, 700 years before crucifixion was invented. You get these Old Testament descriptions of what Jesus is going to endure, and it caused so much division within Israel. They couldn't possibly believe that that was written about the Messiah. So the fulfillment of these promises became a massive boulder to the Jews and the outcome of the crucifixion, the outcome of His death. It was absolute foolishness to the Gentiles because the outcome, the outcome was the resurrection. Paul's addressing this exact same issue. He goes before a bunch of really intelligent Greek philosophers. They're religious, but not the way you think of religious. They're, they're worshiping God, small g. And they're worshiping all the Greek gods. And they're sitting on this place at Mars Hill. And he walks into Mars Hill and he has this conversation with them in which he makes this statement. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. Having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead... What do you think their reaction to that was? (laughs) They just began laughing at him. Like, you got a God that could die? See, this is the Greek mindset. There's no God that's powerful that would die. There's certainly not a God that would become a man. And And then this one is resurrected again, and so we're told this in Acts 17, 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. You ever had anybody sneer at you when you talk about Jesus? Scripture is saying this is a reality. This is the reaction of most individuals because they have the blinders over their eyes and they can't see the reality. And the reality is this. The reality in New Hope Church is that His death means the obliteration of eternal death. That He has ended any fear of hell. Because believers, we will one day also be resurrected as He was resurrected. And that's where Luke chapter 2 goes in verse 34. He says it's going to be the fall of many, but it's going to be the rise of many. So what is to one side a stumbling block is to the other side the resurrection, the rise of many, Anastasius. This particular word means a standing up again. And we're told that that's a reality for you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Look with me on the screen at this. I want you to see this reinforced from Scripture. Romans 6, 4. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Praise God for that. Jesus said that that's the primary reason for His coming. Yes, His coming brought division, but His coming also brought peace, peace with God. And he said, the primary reason of my coming is this, John eleven twenty five. 25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Grateful for that. God's promise to you. God's prophecy. Jesus is making a prophecy there saying, I promise you, you're going to live again. You will live again even if you die physically. Now, all of these things taken together as a whole, all of these present a whole new layer for Joseph and Mary. They could never have anticipated these things. See, it isn't just that people are going to be divided over Jesus. 
and over His criteria for people's lives, there's not only going to be separation, there will be outright opposition. That's why Simeon says what he does in verse 34, this one. This one is a sign to be opposed. Verse 35 says, to the end that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And therein, church, is the more immediate result that you live with every single day. He's a sign to be opposed. And it reveals hearts. Perhaps you've never considered this. That one of the evidences that Jesus is who He says He is, is that confirming of the Messiah is that He would be rejected. It's one of the prophetic proofs of Jesus. So Simeon steps back and says, this child, this child is destined to determine the fall and the rise of many. And the sad reality is this, there will be some who will not rise to the call. There will be some who will completely reject and will not rise to the call of salvation. So you're seeing evidence that Simeon knows God's Word really, really well. This guy is super informed. And he's actually speaking and quoting right out of Isaiah this time. Let me take you to Isaiah chapter 8. And he, Messiah, speaking of Jesus, will become a sanctuary. That's the good side. But he's also a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it." Right there. Even in Jerusalem where they should have known better. It's no wonder in our world because people are uninformed. But right there, Simeon's saying there's going to be a stumbling and there's going to be a falling over this one. And you can track it, track it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here's a couple evidences of it. Look with me, Isaiah 53. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, written 800 years before the Messiah arrives. And then it's echoed again in the New Testament, John 1.11. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. Prior to Jesus' arrival on planet Earth, it was very, very hard to detect the hearts of men and women towards God. It's hard today, but it was really hard then for this reason. They had all kinds of rules and regulations in place, moral codes, laws of ethics, the Ten Commandments, and many, many other commandments to go with them, and all these ceremonial functions and all these moral routines. It allowed people to put on a mask because you could carry out all those functions and fake it. As long as you did everything and crossed the T's and dotted the I's, it looked like you were faithful to God. But Jesus arrives on the scene and He rips the mask off and everyone's heart is revealed to show whether they're either moving toward God or moving away from God because Jesus goes to the heart issue. What about you this morning? Are you moving toward God? Are you moving away from God? Let me give you a real good example of this. The Pharisees, they wanted to be considered religious, righteous, devout people. And so they would cross all the T's and they would dot all the I's and we're told in Scripture that they would stand on street corners and they would proclaim loudly their prayers so that everybody would see them and hear them. 
Well, Jesus arrives on the scene, and He calls them out this way. Matthew 23, 27, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites!' Just pause there for a second. Have you ever stopped somebody in the middle of their prayer and called them a hypocrite? I'm guessing not. We wouldn't do that, but Jesus does. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Jesus was not afraid to go one step further. I bet you've never called someone a son of Satan. Well, maybe you have. I'm not sure. I shouldn't assume that. But watch how Jesus did it. John 8, verse 43, why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies, and that's your daddy, you sons of Satan. No wonder he brought division. See, the truth is that when Jesus came, He literally revealed the hypocrisy of legalistic religion and the self-righteous attitude that goes with this sense of, I can make myself good enough that God's going to like me and let me in. So if I cross all the T's and I dot all the I's and I give enough money to the rescue shelter and I show up at church at least on Christmas and Easter, I'm going to tip the scales in my favor and then God's going to like me and He's going to let me in the door. But Jesus still reveals the heart today, and He rips the mask off, and He brings the division that says, no, you're either following me or you're not following me. That's the determining factor. Have you put your faith in me, which results in you following me? And people innately know that. We'll just picture a social setting. You probably have been to parties recently or you're going to parties in the coming weeks. And you can imagine when you go into social settings, the conversations go in a lot of directions. Immediately people begin talking about sports and children and maybe the conversation drifts to the Detroit Lions and that they're winning right now, yes. Or then they begin talking about finances and they begin talking about inflation which falls into politics and, and people try and avoid that conversation. And they bring it back to children and what you're doing and what you can talk about that's safe. But just imagine in that setting adding Jesus into the conversation and His standards and the gloves come off. Charles Simeon spoke about this in 1834. You think it's just in 2022? Look with me at this. When he is set forth, discord and division ensue. Then the indifferent discover a readiness to persecute. 1834, it was true. You know it's true today. And that's why Simeon said, this one, verse 34, he's a sign to be opposed. A Samion. Samion, a miraculous sign. You can't even explain why he brings so, division, so much division, but he does. So all that to say this. They're going to reject Him. That's what Simeon is telling Mary and Joseph. That's what we're being told today. And we shouldn't be surprised by the obvious. So when individuals want to start up an after-school study club for satanic beliefs, you shouldn't be surprised by that. 
But equally, you should not be surprised when in your social setting, in your social circle, individuals recoil at the mention of Jesus because Jesus brings division and He will do it into your social circle. Culture will oppose Him and His criteria and they will do it literally and they will do it violently. If you need an example of that, you only have to look at first century Israel. Rome hates Israel, Israel hates Rome. But the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and so Rome and Israel conspire together to destroy Jesus because they find so much division in Him. So the two enemies come together because Jesus is a greater enemy to them. So what we're seeing is that Jesus becomes the ultimate sign, He Himself. He pays the ultimate cost. And the absolute total rejection of the sign is the crucifixion, which in itself is amazing evidence that this long-awaited one, who is the fulfillment of all of God's promise, that this one would be rejected. Psalm 118.22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes, or Acts 4.11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Do you mean, Mark, that Jesus fulfills all the prophecies and He fulfills the promise completely and He is the representation of the promised one and it all comes together in Him proving that He is the Savior only to see people reject and walk away? Is that what you're saying? Well, that's what Scripture says. And so that's why Simeon says in closing, while he finishes his statements with them, that the thoughts from many hearts would be revealed. So Simeon is describing in detail 30 years before they ever, cru ever crucified Jesus that that's going to happen. The majority of the world, they will respond to the gospel violently in opposing it. And it's true today. That's why I say he can say, see his day and he can see your world today. The reality is that you know Jesus is the one because of the antagonistic opposition. And God says that happens clearly for a reason. God himself says that. He says those people who are in darkness, they have the blinders on, the veil is over them. Those individuals, they're not only in darkness, they prefer it. John 3.19, Jesus Himself speaking. This is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light. Because of that truth, new hope, because of that reality, if you this morning are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior, praise God because He drew you in. He's the one who removed the blinders. So today, I can say emphatically, if you personally accept, believe, and follow this one who was intentionally crucified and resurrected, you have been drawn through amazing grace. It is absolutely amazing. Because church, this is a reality for many, 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 many people. He's a stumbling block. And that keeps them from eternal life. So the parking lot question, why did Jesus come? That's the most important question to answer. How you answer that 
proves the reality of what we're seeing this morning. There is no neutral ground with Jesus whatsoever. He polarizes everyone. He said, you're not for me, then you're against me. You can't walk the fence and be in the mushy middle. So to one Pharisee, he does miracles by the power of Satan. And to another Pharisee, he's the Son of God. Judas fails, Peter repents. The reality is it goes back and forth like that all the way through the Bible. The thief on the cross blasphemes, another thief professes him to be God. One angel bows before him in humility, another angel screams in rebellion. And so Simeon ends it with this statement in verse 35, to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. If you're new to church, you need to know that what he's saying here is he's talking about eternal purposes, to the end, meaning to the eternal purposes that your heart has been revealed for all of eternity. Everyone is brought to the point of decision, some to collapse and some to the resurrection because Jesus reveals the heart. And what has He revealed about yours this morning? Where Where are you at in this issue? I began today by saying that the fall of man, the fall brought the promise of Christmas. Indeed, Jesus, the Messiah, arrived on our planet, and that same Jesus walked headfirst right into our dark world, called it for what it is, brought sin to the forefront, and they hate Him for it. But others treasure Him, and I believe I'm among many this morning who would say that. I treasure Him. He is my Lord, and He is my rescuer. If that's you, say amen. If that's not you, where do you stand this morning? Perhaps unconvinced. I'll tell you that after the service, I'll be right here at the front of the platform. I'd be honored to speak with you. There'll be individuals in the prayer room. They'd love to pray with you. But if you need to dialogue about these things, come on up. Or if we haven't met yet, come on up and introduce yourself. I'm just asking, and I'm I'm gonna let you go out the door that way. Where do you stand on these issues? Carry that forward with you into this week. Be willing to engage people in that conversation. Why did Jesus come? Let's pray together. Father, among the the hundreds gathered here and the many households that are watching right now, I know it's very likely that not everyone is convinced. And that requires the work of your Holy Spirit to remove the veil. The difficult thing for us, Father, is we don't even know we have a veil on when we're in the darkness. So it requires you to enlighten our minds. I pray that you would do that for individuals who have not yet met you, encountered you, or surrendered to you. But I know the great majority in this auditorium and those who are at home right now do walk with you. So Father, I ask that you would translate what we've looked at this morning into action in our our part so that we would represent you well as we engage people at a time of year when they're naturally asking questions. Use us. Allow conversations to be sparked that we would have the boldness to advance the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ because He's worthy. We find ourselves wanting to advance the kingdom, Father especially at this time. So I do ask earnestly 
that you would open up opportunities this week and we would take what you have revealed in your word. You've made it very clear this morning through the power of your spirit. Use it, God, for the advancement of the kingdom. I ask you for this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and our soon coming King, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Have a great week, New Hope.